Good morning, everyone. Uh, let me add my two cents to the video you just watched and say, graduates, seniors, we are really proud of you. And we're thankful for the part of our church that you are. And, and Russ said it so well, you're not just going to be the church, you really are the church now. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are shaping the life of our body and we're thankful for the way that you have. So I just wanna, as your pastor and senior pastor here at West Shore, just wanna say thank you for that. We do love you. We pray that you will always know, even as you launch out to the next thing, we pray that you always know that you have a home here with us. Uh, you are an encouragement to us. You spur us on to love and to good deeds as the scripture commands you to and commands us to do for you. I pray that we have given you a foundation in God's word that will pay huge dividends for you in the days ahead. So I wanna pray for you specifically then as we dive into God's word and then for all of us. So let's pray together. And let me just encourage you, uh, friends at home, don't just listen to me pray now. Let's pray specifically over our graduates. And you may even have a graduate, whether it's college or high school, in your home. And if you do, perhaps just take a moment, go over, just place your hands on them. And let's pray over them in terms of what God has for their future that, that they'd walk with him. All right, let's pray together. So Lord, we thank you for our grads. We are thankful for the way you've used them to shape our life as a body. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would sustain in them and strengthen them uh, in a love for you, that their love for you would be first most, uh, first and most in their life. I'm thinking of, Lord Jesus, your word to the church at Ephesus in the book of Revelation, where you, you chastise them for having lost their first love. And my prayer for these seniors, these graduates, would be that they would never lose their first love, that they would love you above all things and people. We pray that they would know that life in you is sweeter and better than any other kind of life. We pray that your promises would be richly fulfilled in them. All the promises you have told us that you have made are yes for us in Christ Jesus because of his work. And so through faith in him, we partake of those promises and we pray that for these graduates, they would find that those promises are richly fulfilled. We pray that they would overflow and abound in joy and in peace and in hope. Lord Jesus, we know this isn't the, the end of their senior year that they would have liked to have had or would have expected to have had, but I pray that it's been one that is bearing fruit in them that perhaps you're uprooting in them as you are in all of us. Some of the places where we've grown, um, maybe our, our feet have kind of been planted in the ground and you're saying, be more nimble, be more flexible uh, and teaching us and instructing us in that way. I pray that that'd be the case for all of us. And so I pray for the days ahead now that you would give clear vision to them, clear direction to them. If some are still asking, what is the next step now? We pray that as they seek you, they would find you and that you would direct them. Thank you that you're a good father who delights to lead us. But we love you and we love our graduates. So we pray over them now in the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. So as we uh, look into God's word now, we're continuing the series on fighting fear. So if you have your Bible, you can turn with me to John chapter 14. We're gonna look at two more weapons today. Let me just say, I wanna make sure that you understand why we're kind of elongating this series. I mean, in one sense, you can look at the texts in the scripture, in particular the ones that say, hey, don't be afraid. And you can sort of just take that command. And you could probably just say, well, that seems simple enough. Don't be afraid. But of course, how to not be afraid is, is the question. And a lot of us struggle with anxiety. And so the reason we've tried to do a good job of spending now seven weeks, we're gonna spend this week and next week on it, just to give you a bit of a roadmap. 
Uh, the reason we've done that is because we want to make sure we do justice to all the weapons, all the ways Scripture addresses this issue. It speaks to it often uh, and well, and so we, we wanted to make sure that we spent enough time to give you enough weapons, not because we want to be focused on fear, but because we want to understand how to let faith overcome fear. And the Scripture gives us a lot of weapons to, in order to do that. So we hope that that's been fruitful for you. I pray that it has been as your pastor. So uh, just to give you, a, just to kind of complete that picture of a roadmap, here's what we're gonna do then as we come to the end of this series. I just wanted you to kind of be preparing your hearts is we're gonna turn our attention to a study of one chapter of 1 Corinthians, and that's chapter 13. Now it's a relatively well-known chapter. It's a chapter that's all about love and what God's love is like and what our love should be like. And so uh, what we're gonna do over the course of the summer is we're really gonna dissect that passage phrase by phrase. And I'm excited to do that because I think it's one of those chapters that people are vaguely familiar with. They've heard it read at a wedding or they've, you know, just because it's about love, it's, it's popular. But what I find is that when we read that, sometimes we skip right past some of the most important phrasings in there that instruct us about what love really is supposed to be like and what God's love is like. And so um, I hope that you'll find it to be a really fruitful journey through just that one chapter where we can take phrase by phrase over the course of the summer. So I'm excited to, to go on that journey with you. First Corinthians chapter 13, maybe you start reading it now if you want to. So not next week, but the week after, we'll begin in that study together. And then in the fall, we'll return to a study of a, of a book of the scriptures together. I'm excited to do that. All right, so as we come to the two weapons we're gonna look at today, we're gonna play a little game first. So if you have kids in the room, let me encourage you to get them up. I brought two helpers with me. So girls, come on up. These are my girls. This is Kenley and Emerson. And I think, Chris, we need them right here. Is that right? All right, awesome. So we're gonna play a game that we like to play around our house, which is called what, Kenley? Gorilla Man Gun, in case you didn't catch that. Gorilla Man Gun. It's basically rock, paper, scissors, but with full body. All right, so Gorilla beats the? Man. And the man beats the? Gun. And the gun beats the? Gorilla. And if you tie? You die. You die. All right, awesome. So we're gonna play one round of Gorilla Man Gun. You can play with us if you want to at home. So girls, let's go back to back and let's show them how Gorilla Man Gun works. Actually, show them what, show them what Gorilla looks like. If they're gonna do Gorilla, what does that look like? That's Gorilla. All right, show them what man looks like. Yes, karate action, that's fantastic. And then give me gun. There you go, all right, gorilla, man, gun. So gorilla beats the man, man beats the gun, gun beats the gorilla, you tie, you die. Kind of like rock, paper, scissors. All right, so here we go. Girls, are you ready? Awesome, fantastic. Raise your hand if you think you're gonna win. <laughs> all right, all right, here we go. Gorilla beats the man, the man beats the gun, the gun beats the gorilla, if you tie, you die. Five, four, three, Two, one. Gun beats gorilla. Kinley is the loser. Emerson is the winner. All right. Thank you guys so much for your help. Wave goodbye to everybody. So that's our game that we like to play. It's kind of rock, paper, scissors, like I said. But here's what I was thinking about. We've been talking about all these weapons uh, and how they overcome fear. And I'm sure that you have, over the course of your life, tried different ways to conquer fear. So if you deal with anxiety, if you deal with fear, and we all do at some level, right? You have tried to take up different weapons. And the argument we've been making over the course of the series is that the scriptures have the best weapons to deal with fear and anxiety. But I find often that it's not just so much that I need to convince you to take up the weapon scripture gives you. I need to also convince you not to take up the wrong weapons because that's often what we do is we end up fighting with the wrong weapons. Now, here's why I say that. Now, how many of you have played rock, paper, scissors before, right? 
Rock beats the scissors, scissor beats paper. But what's the last one? Paper beats rock. Now I wonder how many of you just accept that as a premise? Because I think we all recognize paper does not beat rock, right? In almost any scenario, rock is gonna still beat paper. Same thing with Gorilla Man Gun. I taught you the rules, we played around, and you probably took for granted, hey, man beats the gun. But does a man really beat another man with a weapon? Probably not so much, unless that person happens to be a martial arts expert, right? So those weapons are, we just take for granted, we think are good, but in actuality, they, are, they wouldn't do the job that they, are, that they claim to do. So that's just kind of a fun way to illustrate that point. But here, let me give you a, like a real world example of that. I think a lot of us, when we look to fight against fear, we're picking up wrong weapons. And the primary example I can think about that, uh, I can think of when it comes to that is money. I think a lot of us think we'll be okay if there's enough money in the bank account. We're really looking towards that for our security and our comfort. And we feel like we're okay as long as that's the case. And we feel anxiety and fear when it's not the case. But of course we can point to a thousand and one examples of times where people had plenty of money and yet still felt a lot of fear because money's not a weapon that fights fear very effectively. It can do some things and be helpful in some ways, but it ultimately doesn't conquer fear. And so as, we, as we're engaging with these weapons, I wanna remind you, don't just remember to take up the weapons that we are giving you, that the scriptures speak about, but remember, you're gonna have to lay down other weapons that don't work effectively, right? Don't be the person who's looking uh, for the paper to beat the rock, all right? because paper doesn't beat rock in the same way that money doesn't beat fear. All right, so let's look then at our two weapons today. If you've been fighting fear with the wrong weapons, let me give you two more good ones, right? So here's the two we're gonna look at today. Knowing and believing God's promises. So God's promises are weapon number one that we're gonna look at today and how they fight fear. And then looking for Jesus' return. Looking for Jesus' return is weapon number two. So those are the two we're gonna look at today. Let's just dive right in. I, I ask you to go to John chapter 14, verses one through three. If you don't have a Bible of your own, maybe you're joining us for the first time. That's wonderful. We'll put the scripture on the screen for you so you can read along, follow along with us. In John 14, one to three, we find something instructive about knowing and believing God's promises as a weapon against fear. So let's read those together. Here's what verse one says. It says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. So here's the premise we're operating on when we talk about the promises of God and how they are a weapon against fear. Number one is that faith fights fear. And number two is that fear is built up by the promises of God. Let me show you where I get that from this text. So the first thing that we saw is, well, let me say this first. Just as we've been saying, right, this has been our, our broad premise for the entire series, is that the reason fear's a problem is because fear, uh, fear works against God-glorifying faith. And we want to be a people who are filled with faith because that glorifies God and his glory is our chief end. It's what we're about. It's what we're looking to accomplish with our lives. And because fear diminishes that, we want, to, we want to conquer fear. But it also works in reverse. It's not just that fear is the enemy of God glorifying faith. It's that faith, God glorifying faith, is the enemy of, of uh, God diminishing fear. Let me say that, let me say it a clearer way, right? 
faith is not just diminished by fear, but fear is diminished by faith. So it works in both directions, right? You can see that when you're filled with faith, fear shrinks back. And so I don't want you, we've kind of been approaching it from the, from the side of saying, hey, fear diminishes God glorifying faith. We want you to recognize that. So we want to, we want to get rid of fear, but we also wanna understand that faith is the way by which we get rid of fear because God diminishing fear is taken away by faith. Now, here's what we saw in this text, right? The first thing we saw is is this command. Jesus says in verse one, let not your hearts be troubled. So there's a statement of, hey, don't be afraid. Don't be anxious, right? Don't let your heart be troubled. And then what does Jesus say? What's the remedy? What's the, the next thing he's gonna say in order to help us accomplish that? He's gonna say this, believe in God, believe also in me. Now, normally when we look at that second part of uh, verse one and the beginning of verse two, we take them and go, oh, look, Jesus is making himself equivalent with God. And, and indeed he is there. He does that a lot in the gospel of John. But what I don't want you to miss is not just that he's making himself equivalent with God by saying, believe in God and believe in me. I want you to understand that what he's saying is faith is the remedy for a troubled heart. So when he says, let not your hearts be troubled, then he follows that immediately with believe in God. And believe also in me. In other words, when you're full of faith in who I am for you, you will find that your heart is not troubled. You'll find that fear shrinks back because faith is growing and fear cannot remain in the presence of faith. It always shrinks back if, as faith grows, right? Now then, the last piece I want you to see is, what does Jesus do next? After saying to them, don't be afraid, and let me give you a way to not be afraid, be full of faith and others believe, then what does he do to enforce that faith or to grow that faith? He gives them a promise. He goes on to speak about, I'm going ahead of you to prepare a place for you. And if it weren't so, I wouldn't have told you. And I'm preparing it so that you can come and be with me. Now that's a really wonderful promise that Jesus gives them. Why does Jesus move from saying, don't be troubled, to believe in me. That would have been enough, right? He would have basically been giving us the weapon of faith. But then what he shows us is that it's the promises that he makes to us that fill up our faith, uh, that strengthen it and that grow it. So he goes from saying, believe, have faith, to then saying, let me help you. I'm gonna give you a promise and it's gonna help fill your heart with faith so that fear shrinks. So hopefully that's clear. Hopefully that pattern there, and we see that throughout scripture, but I just think that's such a clear example of it in John 14. Now, let's take a moment and examine because we talk all the time as Christians, we talk about how faith saves us, how it sanctifies us. That's a word for helping us become more like Jesus, right? How faith is really at the center of all Christian growth and all Christian life, it's pivotal. But of course, we talk about it and then we don't always examine what we mean when we say that. So let me give you, when I say that faith is this remedy for fear and that faith is built up by the promises of God, let me give you two reasons. Let's just sit with that for a second. Let me give you two reasons why God's promises build up faith. So why is it that when God makes promises to us and we know what they are, why is our faith built up by that? Now that may sound readily obvious, but let me give you a couple of reflections on it. So the first reason why that's the case is because faith is forward-looking by nature. Faith is forward-looking by nature. Here's what I mean by that. We don't just believe, when we talk about having faith in Jesus, think about what you mean when you say, I, I believe in Jesus or I have faith in Jesus. You don't just mean that you believe he did an, a certain act in the past. We do believe that, that he died on the cross and rose from the dead. But what we're really saying when we say, I have faith in that, 
We're saying, I believe that that work in the past has ramifications for me in the future. In other words, I believe that that thing that was done in the past has now secured something for me in the future. Eternal life, reconciliation with God the Father, and things in the present, peace with God and the peace of God, just to give a few examples. So that when we say, I have faith in Jesus, we're saying something not just about something that happened in the past, we're saying something about the nature of faith is to look to the future and say, oh, all that God has promised will come true because I believe in this past event and what it means then for me. So that's what I mean when I say faith is forward looking. We don't just believe Jesus died, but that his death secured something for us in the future. Now, then take that to promises. When we look at promises that God has given us in Christ, we recognize that they reveal certain aspects about the future. That's what promises do. They speak to the future that we will have because of Christ, and they reveal something about that future. Therefore, they become like accelerant on the fire of our faith, right? It's like adding gasoline to a fire in your heart that is faith, and then if I pour the, the gasoline of God's promises on that fire of faith, it grows, right? It accelerates and it does that because those promises are able to make clearer to you what faith has purchased for you, what God has purchased for you, and then you've received because of faith, thereby making your faith stronger. Here's the, here's the best illustration I could think of when it comes to this. Like, have you ever gone on a vacation where you have been really looking forward to it. Maybe, maybe it's a vacation you saved a long time for and it's a destination you were really like always eager to get to. Now, of course, you'd be eager uh, if you never had any idea what the place you were going to looked like. You just knew like, I don't know, Hawaii or the Virgin Islands, somewhere that you just always had dreamed of going, right? And you, you had heard good things about it and you were excited to go. And of course, you'd be excited just because of what you'd heard. But what about than having pictures to look at that sort of gave you a picture of what it's going to look like when you get there. You, you saw the picture of the place you were saying. You saw the picture of the beach you were gonna go to. You saw the picture of the food that was gonna be served at the hotel where you were gonna be staying. And don't you imagine, and haven't you had, perhaps had this experience, that as you look at those pictures, I'm guessing some of you right now have some summer vacation plans that you're hoping you're still gonna be able to participate in, and you're probably going back and looking at those pictures and thinking, oh, I can't wait to get there. I can't wait to be in that place, right? What do those pictures do, right? They give you a visual, a clear understanding of the place that you're going. And so they help you get a fuller understanding of that. And that causes your excitement and your sense of expectation to grow. And that's what God's promises do as it relates to building up our faith. Faith has purchased for us these promises, the fulfillment of these promises. And because it has, the more we know those promises, the clearer the picture of what that future is becomes to us. So that's, that's an important thing to understand about how promises work. And then the second thing, uh, Oh, sorry, let me say one more thing there. When those promises, now this is like, stay with me here because this is a little bit more kind of like inner stuff that goes on in, internally here. But the scriptures speak to this. When those promises that God gives us come in contact with faith in us, they don't just build our expectation of the future. They do that. That's what I was just talking about. They build our sense of like, I can actually see them like the pictures of the vacation location. Right? So they build our expectation, but they don't just do that. They actually allow us a taste of the reality of that promise now. So faith does more than just go, oh, I'm, I'm gonna have that someday. Faith 
actually enables us to begin to operate with a taste of that future reality now. So when those promises come in contact with faith in the heart of a believer, what they do is they begin to to well up and fill up in the believer the, the conviction and the certainty and the assurance that those promises will come to pass, so much so that faith makes those promises tasteable, if you will. It makes it a reality, not a fully recognized or realized reality, but one that is so certain and so assured that you can begin to taste it because you know it. And that's what faith does. It doesn't just say, look to that day. It actually gives you a taste of that day now. I hope I'm being clear about that because that's how powerful faith is. And it's why it's at the center of God's saving process because he gets the credit. And also because it, it, by its very nature, God has designed faith in such a way that it enables us to live in a, in a very real way, live in the reality of the future that has not yet come, but experience it as a reality now. Not fully, but very much real. All right, Here, Hebrews 11.1 1 is a great example. Of this. It's the kind of the famous biblical definition of faith. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, I'll just give you the first phrase in it. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Well, what is the author of Hebrews saying there when he says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for? He's saying that faith is an absolute assurance, an absolute certainty of something that has not yet come to pass. In other words, I think what the author of Hebrews there is saying is exactly what I'm trying to communicate to you, that there is a way in which when, when God's promises, those things that are not yet fulfilled in the future, come in contact with faith in the heart of a believer, what they do is they give a foretaste of those things to them so that they live in them now with deep assurance. I think that's what Hebrews 11.1 1 is trying to get at. Let me give you an example of how this works now. Because this is, let's, like, let's get to where the rubber meets the road, right? That's, those are kind of ideas. But I want to think just for a moment about how believing a certain promise then causes you to be built up by faith so that anxiety shrinks back, fear shrinks back. And let's use marriage as an illustration. And I, I can think of it in two ways. Perhaps you're not married and there's this anxiety that you hope to be married, but that hasn't happened yet. Or perhaps you're in a marriage that is difficult. There's aspects of it that are difficult. And you're thinking to yourself, perhaps fearful, that this can't change or, or it's not going to change. Or perhaps the amount of effort required to bring about the change is daunting. And so that brings about fear and some anxiety. Or perhaps if I were to initiate a desire for changes in my marriage with my spouse, would they be receptive to it? Or would I get rejected even just initiating that conversation? So you can imagine, I, I know, those are realities. So now here's the thing. How do you then, is there a promise that scripture would give to those of us who might be wrestling with that kind of a situation? And, and there is, it's in Revelation chapter 19, verse six. And it's a, it's a piece of scripture that talks about what we call the marriage supper of the lamb. In other words, the time when Jesus will return for his church and take her as his spouse, his bride, so we will all ultimately be married to him. We will be his bride as the church, right? And we'll sit down with him for a wedding feast and we'll, we will be his and with him forever. Now, here's the promise of that. The promise of that is that our marriages now are a placeholder for our ultimate true marriage then. And what faith does, when we have that promise now, 
and it comes in contact with the faith in our heart that that day is going to come. And now because of faith, we can taste the reality of it. We can taste our true and better marriage to him. What that does is if we're married now, it takes all the weight off of our current marriages to be the ultimate thing because they're not the ultimate thing. Our marriage to him is the ultimate thing and it will come and we can taste it now by faith and the promise is there. And faith allows us to get an experience of that promise. So what does it do? It allows you to not be harsh with your spouse anymore because they're not the one that ultimately needs to satisfy you. It allows you to forgive. It allows you to be kind with your words. It changes the dynamic in your marriage when you begin to taste and live in the promise of the marriage supper of the lamb that is yet to come, but also by faith is experienced as a reality now. If you're not married and you hope to be married and you feel anxiety over that, how does this promise work for you? Well, what it says to you is you have a true spouse that is waiting for you and coming for you and has pursued you and chosen you as his own. You are his and he delights for you to be his bride, part of his church. And so what that says then is that whether I get married in this life or I do not, that is not the ultimate thing. And I now have a foretaste by faith because of this, prom of this promise that is yet to be fully realized, but I can even begin to taste and experience it now so that I don't spend my time running around looking, for, looking to uh, draw someone to myself, but rather I spend my days and my time and my energy and my effort serving the Lord and doing what he's called me to do. And when and if he brings me a spouse, that will be a joy and a delight. And then it will be a new day of walking in an experience of that future reality. But should that not occur, I am not lesser in my experience of Jesus. I am not lesser in my experience of life in this world. I have been given the great gift of the foretaste of that promise of that wedding supper with him now by faith. So I hope you see what I'm getting at there. You can experience as an internal reality by faith those promises. And because you get to experience in them, they set you free from needing to, to grab after and lunge after and get off balance because you're lunging after things that this world might offer. So I hope that helps. This is a practical example. So friends, let me just then say the second thing and then I wanna move, I wanna move into, um, yeah, I wanna move into the next, the next part. So the next way that promises build up, the next way that promises build up faith is that God's promises convey care, power, and a plan. Let me, let me tell you what I mean by that. For God to make a promise, I mean, just, well, for anyone to make a promise, they have to care enough to make the promise they have to have the power to deliver on the promise, otherwise it's empty, right? And then they have to have a plan that that promise fits within. So just by virtue of God making promises to us in the scriptures, like the one we saw in John 14, I'm going ahead of you to prepare a place for you. Just by virtue of him doing that, what he's communicated to you is I love you, I have power to make this happen and I will make it happen. And I have a plan. So whatever you're going through, whatever's happening to you right now is not purposeless, but it is planned and designed as part of my pathway to getting you to the fulfillment of the promise that I have for you. So every promise, every promise in scripture, we encounter them and they are almost on every, if you have eyes to see them, they're on almost every page of scripture. If you have eyes to see them, they are everywhere. God has filled his word with promises because he knows that they build faith and faith sanctifies, and faith saves, faith transforms. So every time you encounter a promise, what you're encountering is God's care. I love you, essentially, is what his promise communicates to you. Otherwise, I wouldn't make this promise for you. I have the power to make this happen, 
and I have a plan that you're living inside of. So walk in it. Don't be afraid, right? So it pushes back fear because we recognize that those things are true every time we encounter a promise, right? So now, how do we take hold of God's promises, right? So this is our first weapon, God's promises. How do we take hold of them? And here's how we do it. Number one, there's no way around studying the Bible to learn what God's promises are. I said they're on on almost every page of scripture. Well, you have to read the scripture. So no surprise there. Uh, Let's just be really simple about it. If you wanna know what God's promises are, you find them in his word and you have to read them. And by the way, that's so deeply important because there is a habit of some of turning things that God has not promised into promises. And then we get deeply disappointed as if God promises always to be healthy or to be rich or to always be this thing or that thing. And when we, ex- when we turn things God has not promised into promises, they don't grow faith. They shrink faith because we're not taking God's promises. We're taking some other thing and claiming it as a promise that really is no promise. So that's deeply important. No way around being deeply invested in God's word to understand what his promises are. Then the second thing, the second way we take hold of that. Oh, actually, let me say there, as you're, as you're feeding on God's promises, promises like Matthew chapter five, verse eight, blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. How rich is that promise, right? Or Philippians four, last week we looked at those who pray will receive the peace of God, which passes understanding, right? Or the promise that we're of more value to him, Matthew chapter 10, we're more value to him than, than many sparrows. So don't be anxious, don't be afraid, right? Or John 14, the one we just looked at. I wanna encourage you, don't rush through every promise, but take time to sort of take each promise, sit with it for like a full week, each morning when you go to God's word, as you're fighting fear with the promises of God, don't just go, well, I'm just gonna sort of load up with a lot of promises. You got your whole life. You got your whole life to spend meditating upon God's promises. So just take one and turn it over and look at it from every angle. Spend an entire week, maybe maybe two weeks, just meditating on, thinking about the, the implications of those promises, what they mean, and, and letting them come in contact then with that faith that you have in Christ in your heart. And as, as that faith is, is more uh, in contact with that promise that is being molded over and churned over, what will happen is you'll find that faith will grow, but, but sit with it. I wanna encourage you as your pastor, sit with the promises. Don't just kind of do one and then another and then another and then another. Really sit with it, mull it over, look at it from every angle. Then the second way that we pick up the promises of God as a weapon is that we learn the difference between unconditional promises and conditional ones. Now, here's what I mean by this. And I just, I had to include this because as believers, a lot of times in this day and age, we presume that anything, any promise that God makes must be an unconditional promise. And that's just not true. Some of the promises in scripture are absolutely unconditional. Praise God for that. But some of the promises in scripture are conditional. They have a condition attached to them and we have to meet the condition to receive the promise. I mentioned one just a minute ago, Philippians 4, verses six and seven, chapter four, verses six and seven, where it says, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Did you notice there's a, condi- there's a promise? The promise is the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind. That's awesome. That's a great promise. But it's not an unconditional promise. It's a conditional promise, which means that in order to receive it, we have to meet the condition. And what was the condition at the the first part of that verse? Pray and give thanks. 
So friends, I just wanna tell you, pray and give thanks and then trust the promise will absolutely be fulfilled. I won't belabor this because we talked about it a couple weeks ago when we talked about that text specifically. But I just wanna remind you, as you're taking up the, the weapons of God's promises, in the same way we don't wanna claim things to be a promise that aren't actually a promise the Bible gives us, we also don't wanna imagine a promise is unconditional when it actually is conditional. And when there's a conditional promise, then we wanna meet the condition and we will see God deliver on that promise. But what we don't wanna do is imagine it's unconditional and then wonder why God isn't providing. So I, I never pray, I never give thanks, and I'm wondering why there's no peace in my heart. Well, because I haven't met the condition. So let's let the scripture speak to us about how these promises work, not sort of the, the prevailing mind sometimes on these things. All right, I belabored that point because it's, it can be a little bit tricky sometimes. Hopefully I was able to, I hope I, I made that as simple as could be for you. Let's look at the second one and we're gonna be a little briefer about this one. The second weapon that we're gonna learn to take up this week is looking for Jesus' return. And we'll find this in Philippians chapter four, verse five. So just where we were in Philippians, looking at that text on peace, wanna look again here. So Philippians chapter four, verse five, which again, this is a chapter that is just so full of what God has to say about fighting fear. But let's look at verse five. After saying in verse four, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Then Paul writes, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. And then he says this interesting thing. He says, the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. And then he goes on to say, but in everything by prayer. The part we read just a moment ago. But I want you to focus in on verse five there, where he says, the Lord is at hand. That's an interesting thing to insert right in the middle there. The Lord is coming. In other words, Jesus is coming. He is at hand means he's coming soon. So Philippians, Paul is saying, the Lord is coming and he's coming soon. So don't be anxious, rather pray, right? And that's, that's kind of the flow of the thought there. So here's what I want you to see, church. What Paul is telling us, what the scriptures are telling us is that when we look to Jesus' return, we are taking up a weapon that helps us fight against fear. So let's ask ourselves how so. And let me just give you three. I'm just gonna hit them, like I said, pretty quickly. There are three things about Jesus' return that drive away fear, right? And well, there's more than that, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you three today. So number one, he's going to come soon is what we just saw in Philippians chapter four, verse five. The Lord is at hand means the Lord is coming soon. Now let me, let me speak to a possible objection there. Obviously Jesus lived in the world 2000 years ago, or a little bit more than that. And we're thinking to ourselves, well, gosh, that doesn't seem like the, how could Paul say to the Philippians, the Lord is at hand? James in James chapter five, verse eight, says the same thing, the Lord is at hand. Revelation, no fewer than four times does John write in the book of Revelation, the Lord is coming soon. And by the way, he's not the one just, he's the one recording it, but it's Jesus himself saying, I am coming soon. So we have to ask ourselves the question, well, is, is the Bible wrong somehow? I mean, thousands of years doesn't seem soon. The way we need to understand whenever we see Jesus saying, I'm coming and I'm coming soon, right? Or Paul writing, the Lord is at hand. We need to understand to take a broad scope of human history. Because when, we, when the Bible talks about the, the return of the Lord being at hand, what it essentially means is we have gone through all of redemptive history, the, the creation of Adam and Eve, We've gone through the promise to Abraham by which a covenant people was raised up. We've gone through the giving of the law to Moses. And then we've seen the prophets testify to the coming of the Lord Jesus and what he would be like, this Messiah, when he came. And then Jesus came incarnate, God incarnate in the world. And he bled for our sins and died on the cross and rose from the dead. In other words, everything has been accomplished that must be accomplished other than the return of Jesus. 
and his final glorification when he brings us home to himself uh, and rules and reigns on the earth and establishes the new heaven and the new earth, right? So here's what we understand. When we look to the coming of Jesus and we understand that his coming is near in the broad scope of history, everything that needs to be accomplished for him to return uh, in the in the the history of redemption has been accomplished. Now there's still things like the preaching of the gospel to every nations that we're looking to, but we won't know exactly when that's accomplished or when it's finished. And so in a very real sense, we say the Lord Jesus could come at any time uh, because we won't know when every piece of what the scriptures speak to about what will transpire in his return and prior to his return, when all those things will be fulfilled. So church family, my point in saying that is this, when Jesus says, I'm coming soon, we need to recognize to take a broader scope to understand he absolutely is coming soon. And here's, here's what I think that means really for us. Not only that his return is imminent, that we can expect it, you know, perhaps at any time, but also, also that when he comes, we will not think it was a long time once he's come because all of a sudden we'll see with God's eyes. We'll see from God's perspective, from his vantage point, why he was patient, why he tarried, why he did not come when we perhaps hoped he would come. But when he comes, we will find that we will all of a sudden see history through his lens. And in seeing it that way, we will no longer say, oh, that felt like it was a long time. We will say, it felt like you were gone a day, I think, when we see that testimony that the coming of the Lord is soon. And how does that help us? Well, if you know the Lord is coming soon in the grand scheme of things, it helps you to endure the difficulty of today, whatever that thing is you're anxious about. The second thing is that he is going to win, not the thing that you fear. Jesus is going to win, not the thing that you fear. When he returns, he will defeat death. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 through 58. I won't take time to go and, and examine that text for us today, uh, but what I, I'd encourage you, you can go there and examine it. And of course, what we see there in 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 58 is that Jesus is going to defeat death itself. And the evidence of that defeat of death is going to be that he's gonna give new resurrection bodies, both to those who have already died when he came back and he'll raise them, and also to those, of, to those who are alive when he returns, that they will rise to meet him in the air and receive new resurrection bodies that will never die. So what that means is the thing that you're afraid of, friend, the thing that you're afraid of, the return of Jesus and looking to that tells you that thing will not have the final word in your life. Whatever it may be, fear of death, fear of a broken relationship, fear of this thing or that thing, whatever it may be, it will not have the final word. Jesus has the final word at his return. And if you're his, then he has the final say over you. So that's the thing I would encourage you. Just imagine with me, if you will, I mean, this is, I, I, I love sports, so this is the best illustration I could think of. Imagine how much fun it would be to watch the next NFL season if you knew the team that you loved was going to win. I mean, even the losses would feel a little bit sweeter because you think, oh, we're gonna like come all the way back from that loss and we're gonna win the whole thing, right? So, you know, if the Cowboys are gonna win the Super Bowl next year and I knew that, I'd watch every game with glee. With joy. I wouldn't even worry about, oh, they lost to the Packers, no big deal, we're gonna win it all, right? That's the expectation we can have. Jesus is telling us, I'm returning, and when I return, the thing that you fear will not win. We'll not have the last word. I'll have the last word. So, and then number three, we will always be with him. First Thessalonians chapter four, verses 17 and 18 says, encourage one another with these words. Basically, when he comes, we will always be with him. And then it says, so encourage one another with these words. So the great news is that when Jesus comes, there's no, we're never gonna be parted from him 
again. And because we're never going to be parted from him, uh, because there's, then there's nothing to fear that Jesus would return. And then on the other side of that, somehow there'd be another thing to endure, another difficulty. It's the final word. It's the final say. I love those three aspects of his return and thinking about it. And let me say there, when we talk about looking to Jesus' return as a weapon, I don't just mean, can I just say church, I don't just mean learning a lot of the details of the timeline of his return uh, and studying books like Daniel and First and Second Thessalonians and Revelation and kind of going, oh, well, I think this is how the tribulation is going to look or these things. Some of you may not even be familiar with some of those terms. I'd expect many of you probably are not, and that's totally fine. Now, studying some of those things is good, right? Learning to uh, study the, the, the way Jesus is going to return is a good thing. Uh, but I want to encourage you, when I say looking to his return, I don't just mean studying some of those details about the end times. What I mean is living in such a way today that you are living with an expectation that he's coming back, sort of with one eye to heaven and making your choices in light of that reality. That's what I really mean by looking to heaven or looking to Jesus' return. And as we do that and learn to expect it and think on it and meditate on it, we'll find that fear shrinks because the one who will have the final word we know is coming. So friends, as we began, let us end. Let me just say, um, take up the right weapons. We've given you two more today, right? Do not get caught in the trap of believing that, that paper beats rock. Paper doesn't beat rock. Money doesn't beat fear. Fame and security, family, none of that beats fear. What beats fear is the promises that God has given us in his word, the weapons that he instructs us to take up. So let me pray for us. We'll close our time together with another song in worship. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. I pray that I've done an adequate job now of, of explaining what your word offers us. And would you just take it now? We trust, Holy Spirit, that you're ultimately our teacher. And so we trust that you would take that word now and plant it in our hearts and plant it in our minds, that it would grow and bear fruit and that's my prayer for my church family and for myself, Lord. Your word is alive and it's active and it teaches and instructs us and it changes and it transforms us. So I pray today, I pray for those who are joining us for the first time, that as they encounter your word, they would find that it, it is exactly what it claims to be, sweeter than honey, a good gift from you because it speaks truth and it just resonates in their hearts. That what they've heard today is truth. And for those who are your followers and are part of this church family and have been for a long time, I would pray that they would not grow weary in doing good now, that your word again would lift them up, encourage them, fill them uh, with all manner of good fruit so that they, would, that they would spur one another on to love and good deeds. Would you watch over and protect my church family? I love them. I pray your hand would be upon them, that you'd bless their relationships, that you give them wisdom, that you would give them joy, that you would give them peace. We pray it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. Let's worship together.